You are sending us back to work with a clear mandate to get Canada through this pandemic and to the brighter days ahead. And my friends, that's exactly what we are ready to do. I want to congratulate the Prime Minister on his uh, re-election as Prime Minister of Canada. And I want to thank Canadians for voting. And I want to let Canadians know that you can count on New Democrats to continue fighting for you. More people voted for Canada's Conservatives than any other party, and that's a strength to build on. Our support has grown. It's grown across the country, but clearly there is more work for us to do to earn the trust of Canadians. All right, that last voice, Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole before that, New Democrat leader Jagmeet Singh before that, Liberal leader and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Let's talk a bit more about this now with Brian Lilly, Post Media columnist with the Toronto Sun. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, my pleasure, Jill. It uh, was a fascinating result last night. And a huge part of it came down to British Columbia and things that most of us didn't expect to happen including the Liberals picking up seats when a lot of polls said, hmm, uh, they're in third behind the, the, the NDP and the Conservatives. But they picked up. Yeah, I think that did surprise a few people, although we've learned, obviously, from other elections that polls can be uh, wrong. They can uh, make mistakes, for sure. Uh, but yeah, I think that did surprise people. What are your thoughts on the fact, though, that here we are Tuesday morning and things look pretty much the same? I think that uh, we spent $610 million on an election and all most Canadians got from it was um, a souvenir golf pencil. I saw somebody <laughs> selling their golf pencil. They've already put it on Craigslist and the starting bid is $38. You know, there's, the party swapped some seats here and there, but we are essentially where we were after the last election. Um, nobody really won on this, except the Canadians getting the golf pencils. Jagmeet uh, Singh up one seat from last time, the block at about the same, the Conservatives down two, the Liberals up one. They did some moving around of chairs here and there, like the Conservatives picked up in Atlantic Canada, but lost in BC. They they won some in uh, uh, Ontario, but lost some in Alberta. The Liberals lost some cabinet ministers. The Conservatives lost some star candidates. But, you know, th- what does it do for most of us? Not much of anything. And if you want to know whether the uh, the Canadian public was engaged in this election, I mean, just look to the fact that voting's down. Right now, Elections Canada is reporting 99% of polls reporting. Now, this is without the the magical uh, mail-in ballots that are going to be counted today. Um, And we've got 52% or 58% of registered electors having voted. The two main parties are down about a million votes each from the last election. Uh, People just didn't come out. No, exactly. And and I think that those numbers, too, are starting to to settle in and people realizing that it also seems I want to talk to you about the future of conservative leader Aaron O'Toole. But just before we get to that, what are your thoughts on I played a tiny bit of the speech from Justin Trudeau. I know others have made this comparison as well. It almost seems like he had a speech ready for when he won a majority and didn't bother changing it. Uh, as long as Justin Trudeau's in charge, he doesn't care uh, what the end result is. In my view, he's a 
diminished man with a diminished uh, mandate. He won in 2015 with 39% of the vote. He won in 2019 with 33% of the vote. Now he's winning with 32% of the national vote. Uh, Again, losing cabinet ministers, losing key ridings along the way, and running a very nasty, divisive campaign in an election that didn't need to be called. So uh, everyone's talking about O'Toole's future. I think we should also be talking about Trudeau's future. But the difference is the Liberal Party, um, as I've known it my entire life and as I've covered it these last 20-odd years, it's no longer the Liberal Party. It is the Trudeau Party. And it is built entirely around him. So I think his job is safe. O'Toole's another matter. But, yeah, that, that speech last night showed no, humil- no humility, uh, no indication that he realizes that there is a divide in the country. Uh, I don't need to tell you that uh, you can go from uh, uh, the Ontario-Manitoba border to uh, the lower mainland before you really see any serious numbers of uh, of liberals. I think they've got four in Winnipeg, one in Calgary, and that's it between uh, Kenora, Ontario, and Vancouver, British Columbia. Do you think this will be the last election for him? Uh, No, I think he wants another shot at a majority. I don't see him backing away from a fight. Um, You know, in some ways, that's a, a positive thing for any leader, right? You want a fighter. And Justin Trudeau has shown himself that he's a fighter. But he's also a man who's shown that even when he has made an easily identifiable mistake, he doubles down. I mean, I know it pained Alberta Premier Jason Kenney last week to admit that he made a mistake on COVID and that he got it wrong, but he did that. That's not something that you're going to hear from from Trudeau. If he makes a mistake, he's going to double down. And um, he made a mistake in calling this election. He sees it as a firm mandate to go ahead. It's not. Uh, And he will uh, eventually try for another majority unless the unforeseen happens and that's his party tries to push him out. But um, I don't know who would be behind that. All right. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about federal conservative leader Aaron O'Toole, uh, the performance of the conservatives. What do you think that means for his future? Look, I didn't think that Andrew Scheer should have been shoved out after winning the popular vote in the last campaign, improving their seat count, I think, by 21, 22 seats last time. Uh, The party had other, uh, or some people in the party had other ideas, and they shoved him out. I think that, you know, if if you have a good performance and, and, and show the potential for growth, then parties should keep their leaders around, give them another shot, especially in a minority situation. Um, The difference between Andrew Scheer last time and Aaron O'Toole this time is Andrew Scheer had no fight left in him. Um, I remember being in Ottawa uh, a couple of days after the vote. Andrew Scheer is someone I've I've known since he was first elected uh, back in the the early 2000s. And I remember talking to him and and he just told me straight up, Brian, I, I, I don't have it in me anymore. I miss being with the kids, just relaxing. Uh, this has taken a big toll. A couple of days later, he announced he would step down. Aaron O'Toole came out last night feisty. Uh, even after losing, he came out feisty. And I don't think he or his team are ready to concede to the uh, that section of the consultant class that uh, um, tends to run all the parties, but in this case wants to uh, determine who gets to be leader based on... Um, their billable hours or whether they have any. 
I, I think, too, I've heard the argument that when you look back, even at the beginning of this campaign, a lot of people didn't know who Aaron O'Toole was, wouldn't have been able to, to talk about perhaps what he stood for, where he wanted to take the party. People know now are, are, are more familiar with him, which perhaps almost puts him in a better position to stay on as leader and and for whenever the next election is, go into that election as leader. So I'm, I'm writing about this today for my column in Tomorrow's Sun. And on August 12th of this year, the headline at Politico was Trudeau's Liberals in Majority Territory. On August 1st, the headline in McLean's, a fall election, the Liberals may not get a better window. And it's all about how they're on their way to a majority. And uh, even a, a global news piece from, from June Conservative support dips as liberals appear on steady road to majority. That was June 30th. So all the headlines, most of the the punditry were saying Trudeau calls a, a, a summer election. We're going to have a, a liberal majority. He didn't get that last night. Um, Aaron O'Toole didn't get a win in trying to portray this as a win for him. Uh, that would be that would be false. Uh, but he he held a guy who everyone said was going to walk to a majority to a stalemate. Um, I think he's learned a lot along the way and, and he could, uh, he could win. You know, the NDP, we're not talking about Jagmeet Singh and the NDP. In my view, he's underperformed in the past couple of elections. Uh, he's only increased his seat count by one this time, took it down by 20 last time. The NDP has a real chance to become the progressive party of choice in this country if they put their mind to it. They've already done it in where you are, British Columbia. They've done it in Alberta, in Sask, in Manitoba. It's east of the Ontario-Manitoba border that they've got to be serious and say, look, we're the progressive party to replace the Liberals. And if, if they did that instead of just running on pie-in-the-sky ideas of $200 billion in new spending with no way to pay for it, they might be able to to make a breakthrough like Jack Layton did in 2011. They have to decide if they're going to be serious about that. And, and if they are, then Jagmeet Singh has to get serious about campaigning. It, it's more than just TikTok videos. Uh, one final question as well. If you, there are several ridings when looking at the numbers as they stand. If you combine the Conservative vote with the PPC vote, it would have it would have outperformed uh, the Liberal winner. How much of an impact do you think the PPC had on these results? It's, it was definitely an impact. I don't think as big as some would argue, nor as small as others would. Um, you know, if I'm looking at uh, at the map, and I had one open just a moment ago, somewhere like um, uh, Vancouver, see uh, Sky to Country, um, that that one could have been a possible flip. But John Weston, the former MP, would have had to have get, gotten pretty much all the votes from the PPC candidate to overtake Patrick Weiler. Um, in other areas, like uh, out in um, uh, in the Okanagan, the NDP, uh, South Okanagan, it, it was uh, Richard Cannings taking a seat. And they wouldn't even have needed all of the PPC votes. About Some estimates put it at about half of the PPC vote are disgruntled conservatives. Another 25% are from other parties. And the remainder are from people who were never involved in politics. So if the total vote of two part, those two parties beats the one that... Uh, uh, won the riding, 
I don't think you can say that if the PPC wasn't there, uh, the Conservatives would have won. Maybe if you say about half and they would have won, then that's probably a seat that uh, the Tories should have won. There's some surprising ones in there, including South Okanagan, including Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, and Temiskaming in, in the north of Ontario. But in the 905, uh, my read of it, it was in the Toronto area, it was mainly NDP voters not showing up. That's not the case where you are. But in Toronto, the NDP cratered. People didn't show up or they voted Liberal to block the Conservatives. And that's always going to be a tough one. All right, Brian, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Joe. All the best. It was a late night for many, and if you didn't stick it out last night waiting for all of the speeches and the returns, I'm sure when you got up today and checked it out, you may or may not have been surprised to see that not a whole lot has changed, even though we've just gone through an expensive election. Let's check in with Richard Zussman, Global News journalist, who is usually based at the legislature. Richard, thanks so much for doing this one more time. Yeah, Jill, my pleasure. Uh, I saw a, a photo that you tweeted out that you had a, you had your own SkyTrain limousine after all was oh, said and done yesterday. It was quite something, Jill, <laughs> when you're riding SkyTrain on a Monday night uh, during a pandemic at uh, one o'clock, you have a lot of space to yourself. I think <laughs> it was being one other person on the entirety of the three train SkyTrain to which I got an entire train to myself. So. Yeah, sort of like a limousine, but uh, a little bit different. <laughs> Not quite the same. <laughs> uh, let's talk about the fact the election is now done. Uh, we're still waiting, obviously, to count uh, the mail-in ballots and, and that we could see some slight shifts. What did we learn? Yeah, so we learned the Liberals are still popular in Metro Vancouver. We learned that their vote is incredibly efficient. Uh, they likely have the most... A comprehensive team in terms of getting out the vote, identifying their voters and getting their voters to the polling stations. Uh, the pollsters were right in large regard for the national picture. But in British Columbia, when you look at uh, percentage of vote, they were right. The Liberals finished third, but they also won the most seats in the province. The Conservatives are not popular in Metro Vancouver. Uh, they lost four seats in the region. Uh, and that is bad news for Aaron O'Toole and the Conservative Party as they continue to grapple with this issue of how they connect with urban voters. Richmond is a key piece to all of that. Two seats in Richmond flipped Conservative to Liberal. We're still waiting on those final results in Richmond Centre, but it's looking more and more like Wilson Meow has won that seat for the Liberals. Parm Baines won the Steveston Richmond D seat. And this is again a similar trend that we saw in the provincial, where the NDP picked up the seats in Richmond. Demographics are changing. Uh, you know, the way that parties are communicating with multicultural families, uh, non English as a first language families is changing as well. Uh, you know, this is a significant trend. And yes, you're right. The overall result hasn't changed and government will continue. But a number of people in Metro Vancouver are now being represented by different MPs from different parties. And that overall may make a difference for them.
Uh, still some races where it's too close to call. Uh, I, have, I mentioned I live in Vancouver Granville. That's one of them. And we saw it uh, all through the evening uh, going uh, back and forth and being very, very close. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on the fact that we are, I, I guess, waiting on the mail-in ballots and still things in some races are too close to call? Yeah. And so, you know, it will not change uh, the overall result of the election. Uh, but, you know, it does matter for these people who are running and the people who live in those communities. So Vancouver Granville, we don't know exactly how many mail-ins have been counted, if any, at this point. But there are 6,835 of them to count. And Talib Nur Mohammed is beating uh, Anjali Apadurai right now uh, by a little bit more than 200 votes, 230 votes at this point. A lead like that could very much be wiped out. We'll see how effective the NDP and the Liberals were in getting that uh, mail-in vote back uh, to Elections Canada. So that race is still very much up in the air. No Mohammed had an awful campaign, uh, criticized uh, for flipping houses. Now he's trying to flip a seat here. Uh, it was one that was held by independent Jody Wilson-Raybould. Uh, Nanaimo Lady Smith worth watching, although the lead is growing for Lisa Marie Barrett in the NDP. She's up now a 1,000 votes over Tamara Cronus. Paul Manley has basically conceded the Green Party incumbent. So we'll see the Greens down to one in British Columbia. So it looks like Lisa Marie Barrett is going to be on her way to representing the riding of Nanaimo Lady Smith, winning that back for the NDP. And I mentioned Richmond Centre. That lead is growing as well for Wilson Miao. So he's leading Alice Wong. She was first elected, Jill, in 2006. She served that community for 15 years. Hmm. It looks like she's going to lose in what I consider the biggest upset of the night. Hmm, interesting. Uh, we're going to talk more about the Greens and where they stand now as well. But let's focus a little bit on the New Democrats. Here we have yeah. a leader in Jag- Jagmeet Singh who's very popular but just cannot break through. Yeah, he just can't turn that popularity into seats. And it really comes down to those progressive voters. And you and I talked a lot about this over the last few weeks because it was becoming very obvious that the Liberals and the NDP were competing for those same votes. Langley or Cloverdale Langley City is a perfect example of that. Provincially, there are three NDP ridings that touch that, but the candidate there was not able to get any momentum at all. And the Liberal, John Aldeg, uh, wins that writing. And so the NDP can do very well in those really centrally located urban seats in Burnaby and New Westminster in the city of Vancouver. But outside of that, those provincial NDP votes turn into federal liberal votes. And I don't know if Jagmeet Singh and the NDP can reverse that. This seems a party destined to finish third. They can hold the balance of power in minority parliaments like we're seeing. But the question is how long Can they sustain that? Is that the future of this party and is that enough for its supporters? It is the big question that Jagmeet Singh and the party need to weigh. Not really a question they're going to figure out this week, Jill, but it is one of those things that's worth talking about. You know, they picked up Port Moody Coquitlam. That's a big win. Benita Zarello. They're picking up Nanaimo Ladysmith. They may pick up Vancouver Granville. All of those are gains, but as good a campaign as Jagmeet Singh won or ran to win just those three... It shows there's not a lot of other room to move. All right. We'll watch and see what happens there. We touched on the Conservative vote as well and where that vote is coming from and and located. So what happened to that vote when we look at the urban areas or when we look at Metro Vancouver? 
So PPC had some impact here. So just look at Cloverdale, Langley City, 2,500 votes for the PPC, 5% of the vote up from, I think, four or 500 last time. So that's 2,000 extra votes. And all of a sudden, the Liberal now wins by a little bit more than 1,000 votes. So the PPC did matter. A handful of ridings uh, in the province, uh, they were uh, greater than the margin of victory for a Liberal over a Conservative. So that matters. But the larger issue, the much larger issue, Jill, is resonating with those urban voters. You know, the target of, you know, the family of four, two vehicles, kids go to hockey and school, and, you know, they fill up their vehicles at the gas station and pay high cell phone bills. You know, the sort of target that every political party thinks about when they're building their platforms, uh, the conservatives just aren't resonating with them. And and that trend in Richmond, hits that as well. It also hits the trend that the Conservatives are struggling to resonate with multicultural families uh, in this country. And we're seeing that in where they were unable to move votes, uh, win seats that they were expected. And those are two major, major issues. Again, not going to solve this week, but if Aaron O'Toole continues as the leader of the party, those are the big issues they need to address. How can they target their platform, but more importantly, how can they make these voters believe that they are the ones that can take care of this, you know, middle class that we hear about so much in politics? Yes, uh, that's going to be interesting to watch how that unfolds for the next uh, few weeks and months. Let's go back to the Greens. Uh, Like you said, it looks like now only one seat. That would be Elizabeth May's seat. So are they done? So we're getting close to that point, Jill. When you look province-wide, they had fewer votes than the PPC. So you are at the point now where the Greens are a fringe party. Last election, they were at 13% of the vote in the province. They were looking at breakthroughs along the coast and part, you know, Sunshine Coast, West Vancouver, Sea to Sky, in Vancouver Island, either even in Metro Vancouver, they were looking for breakthroughs. Enemy poll did not connect. We have infighting that clearly continues. Elizabeth May will now go to Ottawa as one of two Green MPs. They also won a seat in Kitchener. But all of this will require a major rebuild. And I think the ship may have sailed in some regards. We talked about this too, Jill, a lot over the last month. The NDP and the Liberals have now comprehensive environmental plans that environmental voters can think about. And only those who are the most extreme on the environment will support the Greens. Other voters are more than happy to support the Liberals and the NDP. And, you know, it's... It's funny to say, but Andrew Weaver may have had an impact here in some of these writings that coming out strong in support of the liberals sent a message to these climate conscious voters that that liberal plan was okay. And Andrew Weaver continues to be a symbol for so many of green and of climate change. And that endorsement uh, may have really helped them uh, push through and win some of those seats that, that came as a bit of a surprise to me and many others. We were listening to some of the comments made by Dr. Bonnie Henry talking about the ICU and the number of pregnant women who are currently in the ICU, uh, saying that it's an alarming number and alarming to see people who are making the choice perhaps not to get the vaccine over concerns about what it could potentially do to a fetus if there are long-lasting effects from that. Dr. Henry stressing that, yes, even though pregnant women were not part of the trials for the vaccine, stressing that it is safe. So how do we make sure it is safe and that people feel comfortable getting that vaccine? We are joined now by Dr. Horacio Bach, adjunct professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases at UBC. Thanks so much for joining us again. 
Thank you for having me. Uh, how much of a concern is it that we are seeing people who are pregnant or perhaps looking to get pregnant, trying to get pregnant, who are very ha- vaccine hesitant, or are not getting this vaccine? Yes, I think it's um, putting in a, 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 at risk, you know, the potential baby because uh, studies from uh, CDC from US they show that it's completely safe. They didn't record any. Um, case of uh, problems with the uh, pregnant um, uh, women or breastfeeding, so it means that it's safe. I just to uh, want I, I just want to mention that when the vaccine is injected in your body, the material is disappearing very fast. There is no traces, so uh, the potential to cause any problem to the fetus or term disabilities is has not been reported. The problem is when you have these uh, potential, um, I mean, pregnant uh, women that arrive to the hospital, um, just to the audience to know when the the fetus is developing in the uterus, that is the place where they start to to grow, as as the progress, during the progress of the pregnancy, the uterus is growing because the baby is growing, the fetus, sorry, and then it's pushing the lungs to the top of the body and the problem is the lung now has less space to get oxygen and on top of that need to work a double or or a double timing because needs to provide oxygen for the mom or potential mom and also for the fetus so the risk in um, people that are unvaccinated that they uh, they they get COVID-19 is very problematic because the capacity to provide oxygen for two individuals in one is much, much less probable. Right. So, so it sounds like what you're saying is the, the health, the, the adverse effects of having COVID-19, if you are somebody who is pregnant, that it's likely that the disease is going to be or, or could potentially be much worse? Yes, so that's a problem. There are complications when the the, the pregnant uh, uh, woman, let's say, is unvaccinated because you have less um, or your lines are working double rate right now. And I'm not taking into consideration potential underlying diseases or background diseases. So the vaccine is very safe. There is no contraindication and is also supported or recommended by the NACI, that is the body here in Canada making um, suggestion and recommendation, and also by the CBC in US, that is a large, as you know, it's a large uh, office or, or research center that uh, they check that they did evaluation on having people and pregnant uh, women vaccinated in the US. So get to get the vaccine is uh, it's fine. There is no problem. And the problem is when we don't have the vaccine and the person is going to the hospital can develop a very um, uh, complex uh, complication, basically, and can put you know, in the, a problem to the, ma, uh, the pregnant woman and the baby and uh, the fetus. And on top of that, they are, not, they are very rare um, uh, cases where the virus past the placenta and infected the fetus. That is not common to see, but it can be an option. And when virus is crossing placenta and is going to the, to the fetus information, we know there are a lot of viral diseases that produce malformation and disabilities in the, in the you know, babies.
Right. Uh, are there any other cases or are there any other examples of vaccinations that are not recommended for pregnant women or women who are breastfeeding or looking to get pregnant? Well, there are uh, some vaccines that the, 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 these uh, women that they want to be pregnant, they need to take before because the nature of the, of the vaccine. So you take before just to build in your body the antibody. So in case this pregnant woman is uh, infected with the virus, you have already the antibodies to cope with that because there are viruses that are very nasty. So we vaccinate before the state of the pregnancy. Okay. And and I think one of the, the things perhaps that's causing the hesitancy, and Dr. Henry touched on this, is that there, there were no tests done on pregnant women of the vaccine. We're getting this information from people who have become pregnant or who have got the vaccine on their own. Is it a problem, do you think, that, that the testing wasn't done, that, that the information we're getting is kind of on a, on a trial basis, or is that information sufficient to show that it is safe? Well, the CBC, um, as I said in U.S., they tested a lot, a lot of, um, I don't have the numbers now, but they recommended that it is safe. They couldn't find any issue with that. So, um, yes, it was not in the trial, but we know that a lot of stuff in the trial, you know, after, after that were, were changed because, you know, we don't know this disease and we had to make change on the progress. You know, when you see this type of cases or this type of uh, side effects, so we need to change Sometimes, you know, the time that we're vaccinated and so on. But uh, um, indeed, this, this, this population was not included and we don't know. So we are based basically what we call um, on evidence. Right. So instead, not, not basing this on clinical trials, because that didn't include pregnancies, but basing it on the evidence that we've seen since. Correct. And I don't think it's um, easy to recruit, uh, you know, pregnant uh, women for these trials, maybe because it was very new. So I understand the hesitancy of the of the pregnant uh, women not to do that. But uh, now we know about people that were, I mean, pregnant uh, uh, w- uh, women that were vaccinated. So we know what happened that that is safe. They didn't come a uh, special events that we can say, okay, no, it's not good to not vaccinate, but it's completely safe. All right. What are your thoughts as well on we're getting, it seems, closer to a position where at least Pfizer, I think it is, where we will likely see the vaccine recommended or available, at least for younger people, uh, people aged five to 11. How much of an impact will that have, do you think? I think it's very important because the this population, as we know, they're, they're very vulnerable and um, we start to see a little increase here in um, in BC that kids are going uh, to the hospital, hospitalized because COVID-19. But you have the example from the uh, U.S. that the hospitals are packed with kids with COVID. So, and that is another problem because, they, you know, sometimes the parents, they need to work outside. And, you know, even they are vaccinated, they may bring by accident, you know, of course, the, the virus and the kids um, get a, they get the disease. So... Uh, covering them at least, them at least we can reduce a lot uh, the infection for the, this case. That we don't know what are the long-term disabilities, and that is a big deal. So we don't know yet. So it's better to protect them and avoid something that we will know in 10 or 15 years when this case will be, you know, older and older. So we will assess, you know, if that produces some type of a uh, problem in the development or kind of a, a you know background disease that we don't know yet. But definitely, it's better to get vaccinated to avoid these problems. 
Right. But I, you could see there too that but just by bringing that up or by pointing that out, parents w- would have those questions and would, would wonder about that, that on the one hand, of course, you don't want your children to get COVID-19, but also questions like you just said about potential long-term, long, any kind of long-term effects. Exactly. So we know that uh, even, you know, all those that they got even um, or COVID-19 after some people's after year, one year, one year and a half, they still they don't recover properly and they have issues, you know, in, in walking, in, in breathing and so on when they used to be completely healthy. So, again, we don't know what is the long term in adults. And of course, if it's a kid, probably maybe worse because the uh, these kids are in, the, in, in development, so we don't know what is the effect of the disease on the development of, the, of that specific kid. Yeah. A lot of people have been asking about if, if there is a difference for people who have had COVID-19 and have recovered and get vaccinated opposed to somebody who has not, or at least doesn't think, doesn't know, maybe they were asymptomatic, but has no record of having COVID-19 and got vaccinated. Is there a difference, do you think, in the protection between those two, somebody who's both had it and been vaccinated and somebody who's been, solely been vaccinated? But we know that unvaccinated people, they will get uh, or the high probability they will um, end up with more severe symptoms compared to people they recover. Um, so compared to people they were vaccinated. So having the two vaccines, it doesn't mean you are protected because we know that after a few months, the level of protective antibodies start to be uh, reduced and these people can be reinfected. But the symptoms in this case are very mild. You can have fatigue, like a, like a flu-like a, a symptoms, and more than likely, maybe exceptional cases, you do not end up in the hospital. That's very important. So at least you are, in, you know, if you compare people that end up, end up in the hospital, that can be the outcome very, very bad compared to those that, you know, even you have the vaccine, but you stay home for one week like a flu, um, of course, uh, there is a big difference. And, and at what point do you think it seems like things have changed and, and I get it a lot of it's because of the Delta variant but it seems like we're at that point of vaccination where we were told months ago that's where we needed to be to get some to get things back to normal but that's not happening so at what point or is there a new number do you think as far as the population vaccinated to get us there? And the, the main problem is that, you know, um, um, not everyone is vaccinated. That's a problem. We still have a relatively, uh, you know, big number of, of, of people. They, they don't want to get vaccinated. And these people are those they continue the cycle of replication of the virus. Because if we will reach a very high level, let's say 90, 95 percent, the virus will be in trouble to find a new host to infect. I mean, a new person to infect. So that's a way that you cut but you know today the problem another problem that you can add is you know traveling so now it's open and the traveling is another issue because people can bring that even if you uh, you know if you if you are protected maybe a new variant so we still don't know but if you compare today as you know compared to one year ago it's a big difference because one year ago we need to stay home we don't move you know everything was closed so now you see activation of the the economy and of course need to be done very wisely and slowly because it it can be very bad at some point as you see now you know people that they are running the ICU is completely packed right now and it's a big issue as well. All right Dr. Bach we'll leave it there for today as always thanks so much for coming on the program.
My pleasure. Have a great day. You too. Dr. Horacio Bach. Thanks for being with us. Well, if you walk around the city of Vancouver, other places in Metro Vancouver as well, you've probably gotten used to seeing those patios on the sidewalks, in some cases taking up parking spots, those curbside patios. And you might think can't even remember a time when they weren't there. They haven't been there all that long. They were brought in as part of the measures to help restaurants deal with COVID-19. But could they be permanent? Let's bring on Ian Tostenson, President and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Association once again. Thanks so much for being with us. Absolutely, Jill. How are you? I'm very well. How about you? I'm good, thanks. Uh, before I mean, we... all things being considered, right? <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. I was going to say before we get to to talking patios, I'm curious. I'm imagining you've used your your passport, your vaccine certificate to get into restaurants. You know what? I got to tell this is a true story. We went to a restaurant in North Vancouver, and the guy goes, oh, "Passports? Excuse, pardon me." He goes, "Could I uh, get your vaccine passport?" And I looked at him as if I didn't know what the hell. And I honestly was like, "Oh yeah, right." And then, of course, I'm scrambling to try to find it on my phone like everybody else is. And I think this guy thought this guy has no intention or has no way he's got a back card. But I got it. And now I've saved it my uh, favorite pictures. And it works just great. It's easy. But uh, <laughs> the first couple of times, a little bit sort of making sure your documents were all lined up so you could do it efficiently. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I thought you were going to, I thought you were going to say he asked you for your certificate and you pulled the old, don't you know who I am on him? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I'd never do that. The guy goes, he'd probably go, yeah, I do get the heck out of it. <laughs> you're not welcome here. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're, you're right. It is slick. I, I've used it twice. And once it was at a place, clearly I go there too often because she looked at it and said, yeah, 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 I know who you are. That's all good. And then I used it again and got ID'd for it and the restaurant was packed but it was great to see people were using it no problem and and that it was all working out great you're right though one of the the biggest thing is just making sure you have it saved in a place you don't have to go looking through all your photos or scrambling to try and find it yeah exactly so get it organized that way and then some restaurants are doing it at the door some are now doing it at the table making it very civilized and i think that you know the more but we're in the week two now, two week and a half, the more people are experiencing this. I hear more and more people say, you know what, I feel really good about this. I feel comfortable. Now there's a whole, there's a small area of, of the industry that's renegades. Um, and and that is that is what it is. But the majority of them are just doing a great job at this. And, you know, Jill, as this whole 19-month story has unfolded, again, this industry has just sort of stepped up and just taken the challenge and, and, and running with it. So, so far, so good. All right. Have you heard of anybody been being fined or being warned about not uh, not uh, using it? Not yet, but so we've been some. I hate you know. I hate to do this too, but industry, not just us, have been. Uh, we get a lot of the uh, a lot of members that are going seriously. I get a guy down the streets not doing this, and it's affecting my business. Or people come in and go, well, how come you're doing this and they're not? So the lists are going to government, and government's going to have to now. Initially, what they wanted to do is give it a little bit of time to see how this settles in. And I think now uh, we'll, we'll find out, you know, there's been some ones on, um, on well, global reporting and ones that are openly defined it. So I, we, our request is we got to end that for the integrity of our industry. So we don't know when or where or how, but um, I would think that the tolerance for this is going to get, um, there will be no tolerance after a certain period of time. All right. Let's talk about something a little bit more fun, and that is pop-up patios. Vancouver City Council is set tomorrow to discuss this and potentially make them more permanent, at least through the summer months and through October. What are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, it's, this is really cool. I mean, it goes back to this evolution of COVID. You remember uh, at some point in our lives, uh, restaurants got closed way back about a year and a half ago, and we only had patios. And then, uh, then we layered on Dr. Henry's recommendation that patios are a great place to be outside. And I think it just spurred on this whole innovation uh, for people wanting to, to go to patios and people wanting to develop them. So they put into place a temporary uh, patio program. And that way they could just sort of approve uh, temporary spaces on some simple guidelines. And then they did another round of it. So now I think that we have in, in, um, in Vancouver something in the order of over 600 patios, both on private, public, and licensed and non-licensed patios in the city, which is up almost double than what it was pre-COVID. So we've embraced it. It's part of the culture. And um, it, it's been very, very successful. We've had some problems where people you know, perhaps decided to make their patio almost like a permanent structure. So I actually was just talking to uh, 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 Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young um, exactly where their heads are at in this one, because it's hard for us to understand. There's a number of meetings that have happened. But essentially what Sarah is saying is that the temporary patio program, as it sits right now, uh, the intention is, is to extend that for another year. And then that's going to give the city a chance to evaluate um, you know, some longer-term guidelines with respect to permanent patios and temporary patios. So they're all gung-ho at City Hall, uh, and they want to do this, and they, they get the whole uh, aspect of, you know, for the city. But I think they want to make sure they just don't turn, you know, every, every street corner and sidewalk into a patio, and then you've got all sorts of issues with, you know, loading zones and parking. And so it, it's got to be a bit organized. But, but you know what, it's, um, it's been a really, really successful program in the province, uh, did an expedited part of the program where they uh, expedited the um, uh, extension of liquor licenses as well, too. So my advice is for anybody that's thinking about this, they, there's an application deadline to extend their temporary patios and their liquor, uh, their liquor licensing by the end of October. So they should get into the queue. doesn't mean they have to have all the, all the, all the work done, but at least get their intentions registered so that they're in good place for next next spring, next summer. And does it still work as far as a restaurant? If you expand your patio or you've got the, the so-called the temporary patio, does that count for your capacity? Or is there any talk of letting just as many people as you can to get more people in and to get more revenue? I think that's one of the things you're going to think about. Um, right now is an extension of your occupancy. So if you are a restaurant and say your occupancy is a hundred and you open up a patio, it's still a hundred. It just means you can just move them around a bit more, but you can't extend your, because if you do that, you got, you have to go through a whole other application. That's when it gets bogged down to red tape and regulation. But I, I don't know that too many restaurants that, that I've talked to are really looking at expanding their capacity. Um, you know, it's interesting that uh, the effect of the labor shortage that people are, are looking at sort of you know decreasing hours and some of their space uh, to be more efficient. So I don't think anybody's really clamoring right now to get more space and more seats until we get the labor thing settled. All right. So and no. does it make sense as well to, to end it on October 31st? I know it gets pretty rainy and cold in Vancouver, but we also do love to sit outside and, and it's not unheard of for people to be sitting outside in November or January if they're dressed appropriately. No, and I think about the Olympics... We had, we, had, we had some nice weather during the Olympics in January, and, um, and there were a lot of people on patios. So 
if people want to extend them uh, beyond October, they'll do that. The city will work with them to do it. And there, there are some patios that certainly with heaters and you know a little bit of covering up from the elements that will work quite well. You know, through a, a two-gone and a bear. Yeah, people love being outside, and it's it's changed. I mean, the COVID nineteen has changed the way we see it. So where before we may have said we should go inside, it's kind of cold out. Um, we kind of like to be outside right now just because of the way things are. So yeah. All right. Well, we will wait and see what council, what the discussion looks like on that tomorrow. Ian Tostenson, thank you so much for joining us once again. Thank you, Jill. We'll talk to you real soon. All right. Sounds good. We have an update on Stanley Park. The park board saying it will reopen to the public for full use today. This, as you know, follows the extended closure to the park due to the aggressive coyotes that were in that park. So joining me to talk more about this is Amit Ganda, Director of Parks with the Vancouver Park Board. Amit, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, The park, so is it open right now, effective immediately to the public? Yes, effectively, all all the trails and it's open to the public and the temporary overnight park closure has been lifted as well. So you'll start to see the fencing um, and the trail closure signage being removed uh, as we move throughout the day and into tomorrow. Uh, So safe to say then the trapping and the euthanizing of the coyotes is done? Yeah, you know, the, we, we had a concentrated effort with the Ministry of Forests, um, which was basically to reduce the, the human food uh, condition coyote population in the park. So during this time, the four coyotes were captured and lethally removed from the park, in addition to the seven that were killed by the uh, BC Conservation Office prior to all this uh, closure work uh, commenced. So right now, wildlife experts believe that there's still a small uh, number of coyotes in Stanley Park and that the immediate threat to the humans has been addressed. So we're, we're back open and uh, we feel confident and uh, that the park is open and enjoyable by the public. All right. So uh, the, my math then would say, so 11 coyotes were euthanized? Correct. Correct. That is the number. And, uh, you know, based on the, uh, the ministry, uh, again, we're, we're confident, um, you know, that the situation is resolved. Um, you know, originally there was some thoughts of uh, much larger numbers, but during the uh, the monitoring and the work, um, you know, it was not those high numbers uh, in the park. Right, because originally we were told that there could be up to 35 coyotes uh, that would be called. Yeah, and, and originally and it was very difficult to gauge. Um, that was part of the, the work that the ministry, uh, you know, um, started, and we had to kind of come up with some baselines or pot- uh, potential numbers in the park, but... Uh, it was determined that that was not the case. It wasn't a high volume of coyotes. It was just a very specific number that were um, the cause. So th- there isn't there isn't that large of a number of a coyote population in the park. All right. And when you say there, there, there still is the possibility that there is a small number of coyotes that are still in the park. How do you know that those aren't the coyotes that were being aggressive? Or how can you assure the public that it is safe to return to that park? Based on the ministry's work and just the, um, you know, monitoring and what was happening in the park over the last few weeks, um, you know, the, the behavior of the coyotes that are in the park is uh, so very different than the ones that were engaged in that activity. Um, so we also realize that, you know, as uh, coyotes have exited during this, uh, this work, that we understand that coyotes will be moving into the park as well. I mean, it is a natural space. We do expect the coyote population to to take spaces that were now uh, vacated by the coyotes that were, say, the issues. So um, now it's just moving on forward on how we can uh, manage. Um, and uh, it's really about what we can do as humans and the behavior that 
you know, we kind of do in the park. It's about feeding wildlife and and the education piece from our perspective will be the uh, the focus moving forward is how do we uh, live with the wildlife and uh, and let let nature be nature. Right, because that's one of the issues and one of the questions has been all along that once the coyotes, the aggressive coyotes have been dealt with, have been called, so now we know 11 of them have been euthanized. How do you stop then people from feeding them, people going in there? We were told that people were leaving food out and getting selfies, so they were getting into garbage cans. Will there be increased enforcement and penalties for doing that? Well, we are in the process of reviewing the current bylaws. Um, and so, and you know, to clarify and update municipal park restrictions, so like you said about fe- feeding wildlife, um, we're looking at enforcement abilities as well within the jurisdiction. Um, you know, right now under the provincial regulations, feeding dangerous wildlife, which includes coyotes, is already prohibited. So, but we are looking at other measures to see what we can implement to ensure that these kind of activities, one, out of education um, and and awareness to the public, and then also if we need to go down the road of enforcement, that we're looking into those factors as well. Right, because if and if it is already prohibited, and, and people know that, but clearly people were doing it. So, should there not be repercussions? Should people not know that if you go into the park and do this, you are either going to be fined or, or there is going to be some kind of punishment for doing that? Well, that's the piece, and so under the conservation officers, that that component already exists. And so what we're looking at is from a park sports perspective, what we could be also doing potentially as well. So we're going to be reviewing that within our jurisdiction to see if there's other other factors that can play a role as well. Will there be increased enforcement then if people are going into the park? Will they see park board, either bylaw officers or rangers or people that will be enforcing this? Yeah, you will see an increase of park rangers in the park monitoring the situation as well. You will see conservation officers right now still in the park. Um, so right now it's, uh, you know, we're, we're looking out for things, but at the same time we, we are looking for the public as well to, when they do see um, any feedings of coyotes or even aggressive behavior from coyotes that they report reported immediately to the BC conservation officer, um, the, the RAP line. So um, any help, I mean, to be honest, it's it's really uh, an effort by all of us uh, to, to not get back to the same situation again because this was not... Uh, any means an easy task and it wasn't something that was taken lightly by the ministry or the park board and to be honest the residents of Vancouver so anything that we can do to prevent this um, is is really appreciated and we'd never want to be in the same situation again. Right and and this is information and this is going out to the public and people who use the park is there still a population of people living in the park and if so how much of an impact is that having on coyotes? Well I don't if you can ask me that question personally, I don't think so. Um, you know, we've looked at that. The ministry's been doing the work in the park. Uh, the, the main issue was really about people feeding uh, wildlife in the park in general. And so we're talking about locations that were more where uh, it's, it's uh, you know, front-facing, where uh, there's large populations of people, where there's, uh, you know, garbage. Um, and we looked at maybe changing how we, uh, our, our litter cans are um, placed out there. We're looking at the different models of putting in um, uh, garbage totes that uh, are, uh, you know, wildlife friendly instead of the open totes. So we've come, a, we've got a pilot project to change those out as well as, uh, as to take away the uh, food attractants as well. Right. So have any of them been changed yet? Yeah, we've got newly installed wildlife proof garbage bins um, already in place as a pilot project uh, already happening. We've already uh, been starting to do that work in the park.
and we'll be looking at other options and and changing up more numbers as we move forward. All right. We'll have to leave it there. We're right out of time. But Amit, thanks so much for making the time for us today. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks for being with us today. Lots to talk about when we shift our focus to Surrey. And one of the big stories being delays, it looks like, with the Surrey to Langley SkyTrain. A new report suggesting it will not be up and running until 2028. This is a new report that will be presented to the TransLink Board of Directors. Let's check in with Anita Huberman, the CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade. Thanks so much for being with us. Good afternoon. Uh, what are your thoughts on this report and the idea that the Surrey to Langley SkyTrain it could be delayed, not actually running until 2028? Well, it's unfortunate, but not surprising. When the decision was made to shift the funding that was allocated to light rail transit in Surrey to a SkyTrain extension, uh, which was promised to go with the same envelope of funding from LRT to Surrey to Langley SkyTrain. Uh, and we said right at the beginning in 2018, that's just not possible because of the cost of SkyTrain. Uh, but I'm not surprised that uh, this is happening. And really, I anticipate that maybe we could even see an opening extended to 2029, knowing how construction goes uh, in this region for major infrastructure projects. Um, You know, what we're hearing is, uh, yes, there is political will. Funding has been promised by all levels of government for that Surrey to Langley SkyTrain. But the price tab is $3.94 billion dollars. And uh, what needs to happen is to ensure that an investment plan must be developed uh, to account for finances, ridership, uh, other outcomes. We need to clarify responsibilities. This is basically a brand new project with the extension all the way to Langley, even over agricultural lands, environmental mitigation that needs to happen. So there's a lot at play here. Uh, It's not an easy shift from funding from LRT to SkyTrain, but um, more needs to happen, obviously. And, uh, And so that's why we're hearing the delay the 2028 uh, yesterday. Um, we heard from through a statement today from the mayor of Surrey, Doug McCallum, saying that the reports that this project is being delayed is disconcerting, given the fact that funding for this project has been fully committed. Uh, he goes on to say in this statement, he says this was confirmed in July when the prime minister was in Surrey to announce the federal portion of the Surrey Langley SkyTrain to go along with the provincial funding commitment that had been previously made. Uh, he goes on to say the time of talk and promises must come to an end. What we need now is the political will by all levels of government to get this long talked about project off the drawing board and to get shovels in the ground. What do you say to that statement from the mayor? Well, we had money committed for a major transit infrastructure project related to light rail transit. We have been starved of transit investments in Surrey and in south of the Fraser. And uh, we knew that when the political decision was made to change from LRT to SkyTrain, that we would be starved of those transit investments for more years to come. 
So it's not surprising to us, knowing how infrastructure projects are going and will be going uh, in this uh, province. We've seen it with the Portman Bridge. We've seen it with the Patello Bridge and with other major infrastructure projects. I understand absolutely the mayor's frustration. I share it. We have been starved of transit investments for decades. But uh, we had something promised to be able to move our people in this city. And, uh, and still we have nothing and we have years to wait for anything. How important is this project for business expansion, for the population, for the city of Surrey? It's important uh, to a certain extent. Uh, The shift from light rail transit to SkyTrain in the Fleetwood area down Fraser Highway to Langley is not a densified high commercial location. Uh, It needs to be built up uh, in terms of more Uh, commercial businesses. There's an official community plan uh, that's being out uh, for consultation right now to really rework more industrial spaces for commercial activity, more housing along that line. But a portion of that line is also an agricultural land as the SkyTrain travels all the way to Langley City. What is being ignored is the rest of Surrey. Uh, that's Guilford, Newton, Cloverdale, South Surrey, and uh, and its SkyTrain has very is very expensive technology, uh, and light rail transit would have been an affordable, modern uh, transportation technology to move our people to businesses, to move our workers to businesses and to their homes within Surrey. And never before in the pandemic have we learned how important it is to live, learn, work and play in your own city, in your own region, instead of spending time in traffic. It seems like, though, even if there are still people pushing for for LRT, for light rail uh, transit, that that's not going to happen or it would seem very unlikely that the decision would change once again and go back to that. Uh, What else can be done, do you think, then, as far as is it working with the the new government, the new federal government, although it's, it's really not much different than the old federal government? What needs to be done next, do you think, as far as getting this project going? Well, I have to state, first of all, you know, there is no going back. Uh, You know, SkyTrain has been decided on, and uh, it's going to be built eventually. Uh, But the conversation with the federal government uh, needs to be around uh, not only reducing their own fiscal deficit, uh, but also revenue-generating projects where they can invest in new, innovative technology uh, related to transportation. And SkyTrain is not the only piece of the transportation puzzle. There's other ways to get people around. Um, With uh, the SkyTrain to Langley piece, the money has been committed uh, by the federal government. It's going to happen. Uh, It's just not going to happen as quickly as we all want it to happen.
there was also an announcement made earlier today saying that TransLink, as well as the municipalities of Delta City or the cities of Delta and Surrey, uh, are looking for feedback on a proposed future rapid bus. So clearly an idea that's still in the very, very uh, beginning stages, but saying that this is a rapid bus that would provide faster and more frequent bus services to service to customers in Delta in Surrey uh, along Scott Road and in that part of the area. Is that something, do you think, that could be done faster or, or that's needed in the region? Well, we are part of the advisory committee uh, for route uh, for rapid transit on, on Scott Road. And uh, we know that a solution is needed and consultation is being issued right now. The only problem with buses and rapid buses is uh, you're facing a road called Scott Road, which is already congested. Um, we're advocating for bus pullouts so that congestion is reduced, so that people can get uh, to and from work or to businesses expediently and uh, accidents are reduced uh, on that road. Um, you know, different ways of looking at road expansions, uh, different ways of looking at uh, utilizing existing rail Uh, to get commuter rail, uh, to get people out of their cars, uh, you know, needs to happen. But really, it's a generational shift uh, to use rapid buses. Uh, And Surrey is a car culture. You can fit the cities of Vancouver, Burnaby, Richmond into our geographic limits. It's not going to be easy to get people to shift and, and just take transit all the way. No, and especially I think when we're talking about a bus, not that there's anything wrong with taking a bus or in this case a rapid bus, but there does seem to be a different mindset when you're taking either a SkyTrain or an LRT system as opposed to getting out of your vehicle and getting on a bus. Absolutely. It's um, how do you design a transit system that's going to be easy, user-friendly, and uh, culturally acceptable as well, uh, that uh, when, when we're in a car culture, we're telling people, you know, buy electric cars instead of uh, gas-powered cars. And uh, we're telling them to, uh, you know, take SkyTrain. Um, but uh, to take a bus is a completely different cultural shift uh, for many. And uh, I, I think it's going to take some time. And the Scott Road Corridor does need solutions. It needs road solutions if a rapid bus is going to be on that street. Because let me tell you, I am on that street very often, and it is congested. Traffic is back-to-back. And being on a bus stuck in traffic uh, isn't great either. Do you think there is concern as well with the pandemic still continuing with cases as they are right now? Are people reluctant, do you think, to go on transit and that might be also keeping people in their vehicles? That is true to a certain extent. Uh, I think it's getting better uh, in terms of the confidence of going back onto transit, especially as vaccination levels increase. Uh, but, uh, yes, there is a sense of nervousness. I'm hearing it uh, all the time by not only uh, our workforce uh, within our membership, um, but also by international students, by students, uh, etc. But um, I think eventually ridership will increase on transit. It's just going to take uh, time. 
And no one really knows what's going to happen with this pandemic. Is there going to be another variant? Um, are the vaccines going to work in the face of variants? There's so much uncertainty that still exists. All right. We will leave it there for today. Anita Huberman, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care.